Hi there. Today I'm delighted to bring you the transcript of my second Skype call-in session, recorded on May 20th, 2010. By which you can tell that, though I am still behind, I'm not nearly as far behind as I was a month ago. These were a fun group of questions, and I enjoyed the conversations. We start off with a question about Eowyn. Okay, so in your discussion of Eowyn, yes. um, you talk about how healing is usually stereotyped in two different ways. And I kind of had a question about that. It seems to me that Tolkien kind of portrays healing as more of a transcendence and a, a kind of an evolution in behavior while the warrior is still celebrated but kind of is below that. And I wondered if it was if she's kind of transcending into her leadership role instead of her um, just instead of the warrior role, and if that was kind of what, if that's an accurate view or not. I think it's interesting to think of it in terms of leadership. I hadn't really thought about it very much in exactly those terms, but I think that's true, and we can certainly see that borne out by both Faramir's immediate response and, of course, what happens. I mean, what happens is they end up going to Ithilien, and he's named Prince of Ithilien, so she actually does end up you know, not being the Queen of Gondor, but right. you know, ruling a realm pretty much of her own. Um, it's pretty clear that Aragorn's desire is to reward Faramir with not only the rulership, uh, delegated rulership, of course, of a land, but of course, the land that he loves most. So she's going to be in a leadership position. And it's very clear that when Faramir says, let us go to Athelion and there we will build a garden, this is not for him a retirement plan. And of course, what they do is go to Athelion <laughs> and build a kingdom. And, well, right. not exactly a kingdom, a princedom, <laughs> a, a oh. sort of a, a nice little fiefdom under Aragorn. But anyway, I mean, it's that's not an alternative plan. That is going over and building a garden. So, yeah, I do think so. It's a step down in the sense of she's no longer seeking glory. She's no, no longer seeking to elevate herself and to glorify hers, to, to gain honor and glory by arms as she was before. But in doing that, in stepping down from that ambition to to earn a glorious end she really is actually taking on a more genuine leadership role. And I think it is definitely a growth in understanding on her part. And it's why one of the main things that I was trying to emphasize in that class is that I often get frustrated when people respond to that by saying, oh, see, she was getting out of the feminine role and into the masculine world, and we couldn't have that in the end. So he has to shunt her back into right. the feminine right. role at the end. And I think that it's really a mistake to view her role as healer and even the connection with gardening and everything as basically Tolkien has got her back to be barefoot and pregnant and you know right. she's no longer this uppity proto-feminist character that she was before and I, I just think that that's that's really a misunderstanding of what he's doing there yeah he, he seems to write very like you said archetypal uh, heroic people and it, that would seem like a, such a step backwards for him to just say yeah, okay, now she's just the pregnant woman. Right, so. yeah, exactly. I mean, even to be, now he's married her off and she's just going to be Faramir's wife. Well, 
And I mean, she's also going to be happy. You know, and that's a, right. the speech that Aragorn makes. I really find quite moving when she says to him, wish me joy, my lord. And he says, I have wished you joy since I first saw you. And it, it heals my heart to see you now in bliss. I think of Aragorn saying that it heals my heart. He's sort of admitting, look, that whole awkward scene that we had before the paths of the dead was really kind of tearing right. me up. <laughs> and gosh, I'm really glad that this is less awkward now and that this has all worked out. But <laughs> she is happy. And not just happy in the sense of like, oh, now you know she's in a relationship and and that's all cute and everything, but that she is fulfilled, that she has really found a worthwhile calling in life more than just, hey, I want to see if I can seek honor in battle. So yeah, it's definitely in lots of different ways. I think a pretty huge promotion. I think that that's definitely something that I wish more people sort of thought about. Yeah, it just seems that Tolkien really associates healing with leadership like he makes uh, a point of how aragorn has these abilities to heal because he's the rightful king and how elrond is the only person who's able to heal frodo and both are in such prominent leadership positions and healing really seems to go you know hand in hand with that i mean even look at samwise who when he returns to the shire he really helps cleanse the shire and then he goes around and takes care of it as mayor and you know, with his gardening and taking care and sorting it out, you know, he does promote a form of healing oh, definitely. to the Shire. That's, that's clearly the kind of role that he sees himself in, that he is trying to bring healing to the Shire. No, I agree. And I think that's exactly the right kind of context. It's the kind of thing that, that so many people don't think of when she says, I'm going to become a healer. That's a really high and lofty ambition in that context, as you say. You're putting yourself in a in pretty remarkable company there. And it's also thinking of it in the local sense, um, that is in the Gondor and Minas Tirith related sense, healing was one of the things that they were best at in Gondor back in the glory days. So it's also something that's very significant to all the people there. For her to say that she's going to become a healer is basically like, I'm going to work on rolling back the clock. I'm going to dedicate myself to these arts of peace that Gondor used to be famous for, but has had to put aside culturally, basically, during these times of war. And all of Aragorn's reign is sort of a sense of turning back the clock. We're going to regain this sort of second glimpse of the glory of Gondor at the beginning of the Fourth Age. And Eowyn is basically going to be a part of that in her own way. And I think that's definitely a really important thing. I also have a second question. Uh, One of the things I've been looking into to kind of expand my knowledge has been the maps of Middle-earth and looking at the various things that are out there. I know that Christopher Tolkien has revised the maps before, and I've seen some arguments on uh, Amazon, which you can take for what they are as far as the comments go. Uh, Do you have a preferred reference about the... I guess the cartography of Middle-earth and where you go to look at where things are laid out. There are two books, both of which I have links to on my webpage. One is called The Atlas of Middle-earth, which is really a remarkable book. And the other is The Maps of Tolkien's Middle-earth. The latter one doesn't just feature Christopher Tolkien's maps. It has maps drawn by John Howe as well. But The Atlas of Middle-earth is actually a revised edition of... An older book. That's really a classic. It first came out in 81. Karen Wynn Fonstad, F-O-N-S-T-A-D. It's in my little collection of links on my webpage. That's the one I would mainly recommend if you're really interested in kind of pouring over maps. I think that's definitely the way to go. Okay. The Atlas of Middle-Earth, it's called. 
Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. All right. And no problem. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hello? Corey? Yes. Hi, my name is Rob McKenzie. I've been listening to your podcast. Oh, great. Good to talk to you, Rob. Uh, my wife, uh, Melody's here as well. She has not yet been able to listen to your podcast, but she's looking forward to it. Oh, good. Good. Hi. What is going to be your focus uh, this summer? You said you were going to be writing something on The Hobbit. Yeah, basically I'm working on, uh, well, first finishing my Hobbit lecture series, and then I'm going to be adapting it into a book manuscript. My goal is to write in slightly fuller version and, of course, in print media what my podcast has been basically doing, which is I want the book ultimately to be a chapter-by-chapter guide to The Hobbit so that someone who's new to the book or or whatever, could sort of pick it up to just kind of read through together and, you know, learn stuff about it chapter by chapter, be able to find stuff easily. So that's the goal. It's sort of something fairly simple, but that I hope will be interesting and helpful. So that's sort of the current project, and then we'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I hope hope that goes well for you. Thanks. Any questions about the Silmarillion? My my wife, Melody, is just reading the, the Silmarillion right now. Oh, wonderful. How far has she gotten so far? You know, I just barely started it, and I was only at the part at the very beginning with the creation. Ah, yes. The Aino Windele, the creation myth, is one of the most beautifully written creation stories like that that I know of. It is really pretty cool. My main piece of advice for people just starting the Silmarillion, read as much of it as you can aloud. I know you get to the names, and if you're not comfortable pronouncing the Elvish names, that can kind of make you stumble. But try to read, because if you can get the rhythm and the cadence of of the prose in the Silmarillion in your head, it will make all the rest of it much, much easier to get through. Wow, that's me. And also, don't try to memorize all the names. Okay. Just, just, just kind of let it go. Keep track of as many as you can, but just try to sort of focus on reading the stories because it's really like your first time through. It's just not possible to keep track of everything all at once. So, um, did he create by singing? Or I, I'm getting confused because now I'm thinking of um, C.S. Lewis, and I know that they were good friends. Whereas in that book, he, um, Aslan sang, and everything came into existence. Yes. I just wondered, but now I can't remember if if he created them by singing or if they just sang after he made them. The latter, it seems. I don't think there's any reference to Iluvatar himself singing, though he is also the author of the music. Though I say author, though it's one thing that's important to notice about the music of the Ainur when they're singing the great music from which creation comes, is that Iluvatar doesn't give them sheet music to read. They're not, like, reading a score. They're improvising. They're given a theme. So they have a theme and a harmonic structure, but within that they're improvising and they are adorning the theme with their own thoughts. Basically, they are doing their own creative artistic thing. And it is through the artistic, essentially, impulses that he has given them and skills and gifts that he's given them that they are then enabled to do their own thing and through their own thing, through their own artistic creation create the music which makes the world so certainly one major difference between the creation that we see unfold in the magician's nephew in the chronicles of narnia the main difference between that and the ainu is that unlike in lewis's tolkien 
has God delegating things pretty thoroughly from the beginning. It is the music of the Ainur which brings about creation. Now, there's no question about the fact that God is ultimately in control of that, and he says what has happened is exactly what he wanted to have, that it's not ever actually out of his control, but yet, nevertheless, their own role in it is very real, and they are actually being useful. It is a product of their own artistic thing. The way that he shows in the Aino Lindale sort of a fictional conception of how free will and God's providence or God's predestination go together is really one of the most subtle treatments of that that I know of in fiction. It's pretty cool. Is that the idea of sub-creation? Exactly. In the beginning, the creation itself is a sub-creation by the Ainur, which is all being orchestrated together and then given being by Iluvatar himself. The whole universe is actually made when... Iluvatar just utters the one word, Ea, you know, be, and it is. I'm sorry if I'm asking about, about you, because I've been listening to you now for a couple of weeks, I, um, and, and just love the passion that you're putting into oh, well, thank you. Uh, the, the works. I mean, uh, I mean, these are things that I grew up with, you know, reading as you know, a tween and in my teens and over and over again. Um, so it's great to see uh, Tolkien's writings uh, becoming much more seriously taken Well, I think so, and I certainly hope so, and it's still not so much as it deserves. In fact, when I was at Kalamazoo last weekend, I was talking with a graduate student that I was presenting with on one of the panels I was on, and he was telling me how his graduate advisors have passed a firm decree. He's at McGill University in Montreal. You may not write a dissertation on Tolkien. Can't happen. And he's sitting there saying, well, the person who was telling me this does his research on 1930s horror films or something, which is fine, but by all means, Tolkien is right out. So there still certainly is that. That kind of thing still happens in academia. You know, you talked about your own history with the books. One of the reasons that I do what I do, you know, one of the reasons that I love doing this is that this podcast is exactly what I would have loved to listen to when I was, you know, when I was younger. And so it's for me just as much fun to think about and talk about now as it would have been then. So yeah, I've been having a great deal of fun with it. Now, are you are you a Christian? I am. Yes. Okay, because it comes out in your. I mean, we, I am as well. My wife and I are, um, and that was actually very nice uh, to um, to see. I didn't expect that when I started listening. Uh, not that I don't think there are other Christians in the world, um, <laughs> but, but but it was just because, I mean, Tolkien, uh, with with his Christianity, is, is it puts it so much into the books. It's something that I have always been really conscious of and aware of in Tolkien's writings. I think they are definitely uh, some of the most thoughtful, interesting, and powerful articulations of a Christian worldview and of Christian theology in 20th century fiction. That's one of the things that I really like. As a Christian myself, I am really interested to see the things that Christians from previous times have written and thought about. And you know, I feel like I learn a lot um, from reading the works of medieval Christians that I'm also spending a lot of time studying. And I feel like that's sort of the same thing with Tolkien. It's really fascinating to hear. Now, of course, one has to be careful in looking at things like Christian themes in Tolkien. It's very easy to kind of read him like he's exactly the same as C.S. Lewis, and he is not exactly the same as C.S. Lewis. No, I I agree. And I've I've enjoyed the way you brought that out, Um, the emphasis on uh, the story. Yeah. it's it's a story, and there might be. Well, I think you talked about this before, where um, in one of your classes, um, the idea that really there's one story, 
and you know the, the reflection on on God, and, yeah. and it comes out in in most writings. Yeah. But Tolkien was writing about a world and a specific place in that world, uh, mostly Middle Earth, and the things that happen to the people. You know, well, you you ventured into the world of fairy, mm-hmm. and and now you need to understand what's going on in the story. Uh, you talked about the different themes, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do names like like you can. Um, but uh, where, where there, there's almost an Eve character, but but if you confuse this character with Eve, you've missed the point. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I was just having a conversation with someone earlier today who was saying, "So is Melkor in the Silmarillion basically Satan?" and the answer is, well, yes, definitely, clearly, yes. The parallel is obvious, but at the same time, you get really nervous saying yes to that because once you take the step, it's one thing to perceive the parallels and say that, you know, clearly Melkor is parallel to Lucifer and the Satan figure. But if you say, so Melkor is Satan, then you're starting to miss the point because now when you're reading about Melkor, if you're reading about Melkor and you're thinking about Satan, in other words, if you're reading the Silmarillion and you're thinking about the book of Revelation, well, you're thinking about Revelation now. You're not thinking about the Silmarillion anymore. Right. And they're not identical. They're not the same character. You know, they're not the same person. What what Tolkien never does is cross the line in the way that Lewis does. Yeah. The Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan explicitly He's not just a character who is parallel to Christ. Aslan himself identifies himself with Jesus. You know, yeah. when, he, when he says to the Pevensey kids, you know, that they will have to learn to know him by another name in their own world. So Lewis is kind of comfortable crossing that line in his fiction and inviting that kind of an explicit identification. Tolkien never does that, you know, because he's definitely sort of keeping his own characters separate and wants them thought about separately in that way. So, yeah, it's these things I think are tricky. And sometimes I have seen Christian readers of Tolkien become sort of very understandably enthusiastic about the Christian themes in Tolkien. But it's easy to kind of start taking things in what I think are ultimately sort of unfair and oversimplified directions. But anyway, it's certainly a very rich set of texts for a Christian reader. There's definitely a lot there. Um, now, do you need to go and take another? Yeah, I probably should. I think I've got. I, I don't. I'm not sure if anyone is waiting right now, but I think there might be. So I should probably you don't, run. Don't have time to talk about whether or not Belrog could win. <laughs> um, sure, I do. No, <laughs> no. there we go. Okay, we're, we're done. Um, okay. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. It's been great uh, talking to you. I love what you're doing. Please great. keep doing. Well, thanks very much. I plan to. Hello, Zach. Hello, Professor Olson. Can you hear me okay? I can. You're back. I'm glad, I'm glad you called back. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to pick up for me. No problem. So, I wanted to uh, ask you about... I actually asked you a whole bunch of questions a few weeks back on your Facebook page, and a lot of other people answered. So, <laughs> so I've been thinking of, what am I going to ask him? What am, what am I going to ask him? <laughs> So, uh, there's one thing that I asked on there that I still want a little clarification about. And it's the uh, 80 or so years while Aragorn is off in the wild. And we see a little bit about that in the appendices, but I'm wondering why he never tries to take more credit for that or, 
or you know, use that to boost up his reputation, like when Faramir uh, pronounces his title before the broken gate. Right. Yeah. I mean, he. It... It's interesting that he, he kind of mentions it briefly, but sort of passes it off. That is, you know, he says to to Aemir, basically, yeah, I knew your dad, but and he says, I don't know you, for you are young. I rode with the Rohirrim before your time, basically, he says. And it's, on the one hand, kind of an interesting thing to say, but he doesn't seem to actually try to make capital out of it. He's not like, hey, I knew your dad, and, uh, you know, so that makes me you know, like kind of awesome and you should respect me. He never really tries to turn it in that way. Aragorn always downplays sort of any kind of reputation. I mean, even you think about the remarks he makes to Boromir during the Council of Elrond, especially when Boromir makes that kind of cutting remark about, we'll see if the hand that wields it has inherited the sinews of the kings of men or has just inherited an heirloom only. And Aragorn's only response is, who can tell? You know, he could say like, well, okay, let me just trot out some of my resume here for you. And because he could do the same thing with Boromir. He, Aragorn, was a war captain in Minas Tirith while Ecthelion, Denethor's dad, was still the steward. So he never goes there. It's kind of remarkable that he never even sort of mentions that. But that's how Aragorn is. And I think that it's pretty consistent that the people who really kind of have something to brag about rarely do in Tolkien. And I think that that's a really important sort of thing. I mean, whenever you see somebody making a big speech about themselves, it's often a pretty bad sign (laughs) as far as their personal character is concerned. Right. And I had one other thing, a little unrelated, something completely different that also got my attention. And it was, uh, it was the jewel that uh, Arwen gives to Frodo, and he seems to derive some kind of comfort from it. Yes. Is there anything special about this? or any history to it or anything like that. Well, it's, it's, it is interesting. I mean, it seems to be connected when she gives it to him. She treats it almost like it's her ticket on board the ship when she can leave. Let me see if I can find the actual speech that she makes. Of course, this is very significant, even if only because it's one of the only speeches she makes ever. In the whole, in the whole, right. in the whole series, uh, Arwen says, "A gift I will give you, for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the Havens, for mine is the choice of Luthien, and as she, so have I chosen, both the sweet and the bitter. But in my stead, you shall go, Ringbearer, when the time comes, and if you desire it." If your hurts grieve you still, and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the west, until all your wounds and weariness are healed. But wear this now, in memory of Elfstone and Evenstar, with whom your life has been woven. And that's when she takes out a white gem like a star that lay upon her breast, uh, and set the chain about Frodo's neck. When the memory of the fear of the darkness troubles you, this will bring you aid. Does that gem have any power in its own? Her last line seems to suggest it, when she says that this will bring you aid. In her first speech... She seems to downplay that. You know, she says, wear this now in memory of Elfstone and Evenstar. Like, basically, remember, what she gives to him there is not something for the present, but hope for the future. She's giving him her seat on the boat to Valinor, where you can go to the Undying Lands and be healed and find the healing there that you will not be able to find in Middle-earth. So she's recognizing that he's not going to find healing in Middle-earth, and she's not promising him healing. So we do see him clutching the gem when he's in pain. There is a similarity between the words that she says here to Frodo and the words that Galadriel says when she gives him the file. 
Right. When the darkness is, when the darkness surrounds you, she says, remember Goadriel and her mirror. So Goadriel connects it with memory in the same way. And clearly the file is more than just a memento of Goadriel. It has more power than that. So presumably the gem has some kind of power too, but clearly its primary function is hope, essentially, to look towards the future. Remember that you will be healed because you are going to get my seat on the ship that's leaving Middle Earth. Uh, And when you do, you know, take that trip, then you will finally be healed. So the actual are there properties of that gem, which the hobbits would call magical properties? And if so, exactly what are they? It's not entirely clear. I would guess that there are. I mean, it seems to be an important thing. But it's equally clear that it doesn't work in the sense of, I mean, it certainly doesn't just remove his pain or or actually heal him. He goes to it for comfort when he's suffering, but he still seems to be suffering when he's doing it. So yeah, I think that it is very interesting. And you know, I liked some of what they did in the film with that. I mean, the way that they made the gem into sort of just a connection with her relationship with Aragorn and and sort of the pledge between them. That was kind of okay. I I sort of didn't mind that. But it was really kind of took on a totally different significance in the film. Yes, I noticed. (laughs) Okay, well, I don't have anything. All right, no problem. Uh, It was was good to talk with you. If you uh, have any other questions that you can think of, let me know. I'll, I'll probably be doing this in, a, in probably about two weeks again. So Okay, wonderful. I'll write down all my questions. <laughs> all right, great. All right, well, I'll talk to you later. All right. Okay, bye. All righty. Bye-bye. Hello? Hello. Hello. Hi. My name is Laura. Hi, Laura. Glad I caught you. Thank you for being patient. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for taking calls. No problem. Um, I actually am a co-host of a Tolkien podcast. Oh, really? Cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, we are enthralled by you, actually. So. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, we really enjoy your, your lectures that you give. Um, my question is, that, like, I have been reading Tolkien forever, and I, I've always identified with the people of Rohan mm-hmm. and I was not pleased with the movies, how they didn't really capture how closely the people of Rohan connected with their horses. Right. You know, and I mean, they barely mentioned snowman at all. And that just really upset me. And I kind of wanted to know your opinion on that. I mean, I can see why they cut it out of the movie, but you know, one of the things I think with that is that it's one of the ways in which it's just really hard to capture so many of the things from a book when you're trying to adapt it into a film. And I think that that's a really good example of something that would just sort of think about it as a creative project from the other side. That is, if we kind of turn the question around and think, if I were making a film, how would I go about trying to convey more more strongly, more clearly that relationship? And there might be some things that could be done, but it would be really difficult to do. I just think that that kind of attachment, they did a good job, for instance, of showing how 
important horses were kind of theoretically to them? I mean, in the way in which horses figure in so much of their architectural design and things, you know, Theoden's armor and stuff, you know, you can see sort of horses and horse motifs everywhere. So they do a good job sort of visually of showing this is a culture in which horses are really important. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have that sort of personal thing that you're describing, which I agree. Tolkien does a really good job of conveying that in the books and not just by certain lines that characters deliver, which could have been done in the films. Things like where Boromir insists that whatever he finds in Rohan, he will not find that the Rohirrim have been selling horses to Sauron in Mm -hmm. tribute. Things may be amiss in Rohan, but that is not happening, I promise you. And it would have been nice, perhaps, to hear something like that from somebody. But that can't include everything. It's hard. I mean, this is one of the things that I always kind of try to remind myself of. When you go over the films and you're sort of thinking like, oh, like I wish they'd done this or I wish I, they, they'd done that. Pretty much you're asking for a 25-hour movie, each one to be like 25 hours <laughs> long. And it's just, you know, it really it would not have been practicable. And, and I believe they did a reasonably good job. There are things they could have done differently. But anyway, I mean, that's hard. So yeah, I mean, I think that that is definitely a way in which the Rohirrim in the book are just better. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. It, they they just seem kind of bland in the movies, I think. Yeah. Like, they didn't go into their culture very much. Like, they were just kind of there. Yeah, and I think in part the Rohirrim in the film also suffered from something which many people suffered from in the films, which was just the way in which the films, as many films do, you know, really made them weaker, dumber more flawed so that that happened so far across the board i mean like mm-hmm. faramir good grief and aragorn and even gandalf and frodo and, and the rohirrim as a culture the way that the battle of helm's deep comes around there were a couple moments where i was just confused the first time i watched the films and i was just like they're going to helm's deep but aragorn seems to be acting as if this is a horrible idea and like oh they don't know any better and they're going to get slaughtered there and i'm thinking wait wait no no going to helm's deep is really a good idea what else are you suggesting you've got this huge <laughs> army marching on you what's the downside of marching into like the strongest fortress that you have in your land what is not computing here i don't understand but of course i mean one of the you know the problems is, is in the film how they reduce the army of rohan from from several thousand down to, I don't know how many, like... And 500, I yeah, think Yeah, 500. Said. You know, I understand they want to make the situation more desperate and, you know, whatever, that's fine. The result, though, is they make Theoden look like a git for a substantial stretch of time there during they the do. film. And I miss the immediately post-healing uh, of Gandalf Theoden. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the, that scene, it's a scene that I talked about in class when I did that a few weeks back. You know, the scene where they meet Kaoral, the rider who comes in and who sees Theoden and kneels down and gives him his notched sword and says, command me. That's just all kinds of awesome. And they just don't have anything like that in the films. I mean, the final charge of Theoden is cool and everything, but... Mm-hmm. I could wish that the films didn't always feel like they had to set up those kind of moments with making them really look weak and pathetic first. But anyway, you know, whatever. (laughs) Oh. Okay, well, um, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you, definitely.
Hello, Josh. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Uh, not too bad. The uh, Rangers uh, heading down south uh, to meet up with Aragorn and, and Rohan. Yes. Um, is there much written about that as to like what transpires there other than, than they go and help out? Is there anything about their – I'm sure it's not a very peaceful path down there. So Their paths basically from Rivendell down to – down to Rohan? Yeah. Yeah, no, we never hear about that. I mean, we hear about what happens when they, they you know, meet up with Aragorn at the beginning of Book 5. Um, th- that is the beginning of the Return of the King. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then, of course, we hear what happens to them afterwards. I mean, they're with Aragorn from then on through the Pass of the Dead and then on to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. But, no, we don't really get any kind of backstory we hear some things that when they come and they deliver messages, here's the standard from Arwen and here's a message from Elrond, but we don't he- really hear anything about their trip. There is the kind of implication that it's been a challenging journey in some way. When the group of them, the rangers, are challenged by Aemir because they meet them in the dark, of course. You know, they don't know who's there, and it sounds like it could be an ambush or something. And when Aemir challenges him and says, you know, who rides in Rohan? And the response that Halbarad makes is, Rohan, you say? That is a glad name. You know, like, oh man, we're glad to finally get to Rohan. So <laughs> his little speech there is sort of pregnant with untold backstory there. And I think that there are so many places in Tolkien where you get like the glimpse of stories that have happened, either like the short version of stories, which obviously there's much more to be told about, or just like the glimpse of the fact that there are stories that happen and we never really hear more about it. I mean, for instance, we learn in the appendices that there was a great battle in Dale in the Lonely Mountain at the same time as the Battle of the Pelennor Field, and, mm-hmm. and that there was a great yeah. battle in Mirkwood that's going on, and that sounds like that would be interesting and be like a very interesting chapter to hear the story of, but we never really hear it. We just sort of hear that it has happened. There's, of course, the sense of all these other things which probably would be happening, but we don't really know what they are. And this is actually one of the things that I really admire. I mean, I, I haven't played... Lord of the Rings Online, but from everything that I've heard about it, I was actually talking with Professor Michael Drought about this, who has played the game and was telling me about it. Mm. And it's something that I think is really interesting work by them to basically sort of take and fill out some of the stories, the way that they don't try to come in and give in the online game the sort of really direct interaction with the main story, but that you're sort of you know, one of the things that they're doing is sort of filling in the the white spaces, both literally the white spaces on the maps, and also sort of more figuratively or in a more narrative sense. Clearly, there must have been stuff going on in the north that Elrond is paying attention to. We know that there are things that the rangers were doing up there, and and that there are monsters roaming around in the wild, not far from Bree. So we get glimpses that all this stuff is happening. But we never see it happen. And so the way that the online game provides a way to build a kind of narrative around that in ways is still really respectful of, of, you know, Tolkien's world and Tolkien's stories is, I think, a really cool thing to do. I find it really interesting in that way. Yeah, and I've been um, surprised as to how well it's turned out. I mean, I I just kind of picked it up just because I was bored one day and 
then kind of walked in and, and started doing some stuff and then all of a sudden realized that, wow, this is like what I expected it to be when I thought about it. You know I mean? Right. Just from a, a visual perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and that's, that is actually another thing that I've heard that they've done a really remarkable job with the visual stuff. So I have been and remain very tempted to play the game. I haven't yet mostly because I just don't have time and I'm not sure when I will have time, but if I ever do get time, then darn it, that's what I plan to do. <laughs> well, then of course, you know, once 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 you start, then it's just a, a slippery slope. Well, and... that's kind of exactly why I haven't started <laughs> because I have been kind of since I've heard so much about it, um, and I you know I feel a certain uh, detached professional interest in exploring it. That's what I keep telling myself, but I do definitely suspect that if I began to explore it, it would be difficult to extract myself. So uh, <laughs> I am being cautious yeah, in that you, regard. Have you seen, um, uh, do you know, do you follow uh, Veneration on Twitter? Uh, He's one of the other writers on a uh, casual sort of stroll to mortar. I think I do. Yes. Um, cause he's actually streaming stuff from in game. Oh, cool. Um, so that might be a chance to see stuff without having to actually commit to yes. playing. Yeah. So, all right, well, I'll let you go cause I'm sure you probably have other, uh, other folks and, uh, other things to get to, but, uh, I appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for coming. Uh, as always, I look forward to your next, uh, releases. Good, good. Thanks. Well, I will know. I'll try to get to them. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, take it easy. All right, bye. Hello. Hello, Brandon. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being patient. Uh, sure. Um, my, the question I was thinking of has two parts. The first is the simple part, and that is: is the Lord of the Eagles in Middle Earth the same as the Lord of the Eagles in Val- Valinor? The Lord of the Eagles that we meet in the Lord of the Rings does not have the same name as the Lord of the Eagles that we met in the Silmarillion. And eagles are a little bit uncertain. That is, when we meet the eagles in The Hobbit, for what I will call the first time from within one frame of reference, that is, it's the first the first of his published works where he's talking about the eagles. Right. He talks about the eagles in The Hobbit Basically, as if they are a particular kind of eagle. They're birds. They're clearly intelligent birds, and these are the great eagles, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of supernatural connection with them at all. Then, of course, you read the Silmarillion, obviously, as you know, they are the messengers of Manwe, and they serve a very much more... Now, they're, they're, they still don't appear to be supernatural beings. You know, they're still... Yeah, You know, they're kind of working for Manway, but they're still in the Silmarillion. We see the eagles get sort of conceived of at the same time that the Ents are. So, I mean, the eagles and the Ents are connected to each other in one sense, in that they both kind of come out of the same brainstorming session that <laughs> that, that Manway and Yavanna have. That's not quite the right way to describe it, I think. But anyway, you know, so... It's not clear, for instance, within that conception of the eagles, are the eagles immortal? What Treebeard apparently is not dying of old age anytime soon. Is that true of eagles too? I mean, the simplest explanation is no. I mean, the Lord of the Eagles in the Lord of the Rings appears to be just a, you know a totally different eagle, and they don't mention 
the first age Lord of the Eagles anymore. So we just don't get all that much information on them. As far as we can tell, I mean, even in The Hobbit, of course, the Eagles are almost always agents of the supernatural. I mean, they are the instruments of deliverance and eucatastrophe all the time. They almost never do anything that isn't eucatastrophic. They're just the wandering eucatastrophes. Um, <laughs> I had one of my students this past semester who basically wrote his paper on this subject and was talking about the eagles and how they're always kind of conveniently coming in to rescue people and set things right. Not that everything is always set right or that it is always done by the eagles, but certainly any time the eagles come in, they're coming in dramatically to set things right. There's no coincidence there. This is not just like a random deus ex machina thing that Tolkien just keeps in his hip holster and is always pulling out. He is not going to be forgetting about the connection between the eagles and Manway. And even if nobody talks about that in the Third Age, you know, even if the only time that the, the action of the eagles is connected at all with anything sort of supernatural would be around the time of the resurrection of Gandalf or the reincarnation right. of Gandalf. But even then, he's the eagle is sent by Goadriel. It's not like the eagle is being sent explicitly and directly by the Valar there. But I think that you can still see a survival in the eagles. When the eagles come in, this is the direct intervention of the Valar. And this, by the way, is what I think would be the simplest, not necessarily, I would emphasize, not necessarily the most satisfying, but the simplest answer to the age-old question, why didn't they just fly the ring with the eagles into, into Mount Doom and have done with it? Well, because, as Elrond says, the Valar are not just going to come in and solve this problem. That is not the plan. And Elrond is very clear on that in the Council of Elrond. This thing belongs to Middle-earth and it's up to us to deal with it. We have been left as stewards of Middle-earth and this is in our job description. And we can't just sit back and say, well, let's ask the Valar to take care of it for us. They can hope and rely on their aid as, in fact, they do and they receive it. But basically... To say, like, hey, let's, you know, hire some eagles and get them to fly us into Mordor, that is almost exactly the same thing as trying to send it over the sea, which Elrond rejects. The Valar aren't going to do that because the Valar are still connected with the eagle. You really can't get away from that, I think. I mean, even to someone who's never read the Silmarillion and so has not seen the explicit connection between the eagles and the Lords of the West you got to get suspicious <laughs> with yeah. the way the eagles are always acting, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that clearly the eagles are like an act of God every time they appear, and that's why. They're not going to act that way in this plot. That's just not how this is going to go down. It's, it's, not, it's not what this story is about. And so that's why the eagles are certainly not going to fly the ring into Mordor. Mm. I mean, yeah, that makes sense because... Even before I'd read the somewhere early, it never made sense to me within the world being set up that, oh, well, the Eagles will drop it off. That right. just, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the simple, you know, five minute, oh, wait, yeah, that seems like a great idea. But then, like, when you think about it for more than a couple seconds, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. One of the problems there is kind of ceasing to think of it as a story. That is not the story that's being told. I mean, similarly, could you say, it's like you say, oh, isn't there theoretically an omnipotent God who's in charge of this world? Well, in that case, forget the eagles. That's the slow route, too. Why couldn't Iluvatar 
snap his divine fingers and solve everybody's problem instantly. Right. Well, that could happen. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot that's wrong with that. That's not how things happen. First of all, it's obviously not a very interesting story to tell. But apart from just generating interest, that's a story which wouldn't be true. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, right. that's not how things happen. And so... The eagles are only just kind of an extension of that sort of thinking. So when people are thinking kind of pragmatically like that, they're not thinking about that as a story. The story of the eagles flying the ring into mortar. What kind of story is that? What is, what is that story about? And it's, it is nothing like the story that Tolkien is wanting to tell. So, of course, he wouldn't do that. Right. Yeah, but... But anyway, I mean, you know, I always understand that question. The eagles are very interesting, and they're one of the things that, I mean, even ants, of course, we get more on ants than we get on eagles, but even yeah. the ants yeah. are not very, very clearly defined what they are. Uh, what happens to ants when they die, for instance, not 100% clear. Yeah. Um, are they children of Iluvatar? Are they not? Dragons, for instance, seem to be not exactly children of Iluvatar. You know, a lot of these things are not very thoroughly worked out explicitly within his system and then we end up just kind of having to sort of speculate which is a little bit dangerous and the eagles i think are kind of on the fringes of that i mean just as far as the amount of information we have with them they appear to be related to animals in a similar way to how ants are related to trees not in the sense of like the eagles are the shepherds of the animals but in the sense of coming from animals and being upgraded animals the same way that ants are upgraded trees eh, that's not a very good metaphor but anyway <laughs> I, I certainly one that tolkien would object to pretty strongly i suspect <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway i mean you know the eagles they seem to be first and foremost birds and then they also of course have intelligence and the ability to talk and presumably at least a longish life if not an indefinite lifespan and of course this kind of direct, it seems, relationship with Manwe and the Valar. So those are basically the things that we can see from what we hear about them. But what we hear about them is pretty unsystematic. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing is the eagles in the Silmarillion are directly related to Manwe, even if the ones in the yeah. in Lord of the Rings are not, correct? Right, right. Well, I mean, never explicitly, but I mean, apart from Elbereth, the Valar are rarely mentioned, and of course, even the references to Elbereth are not generally very explained. It's just uh, the thing you say, the elves say that right. it has a deeper meaning, but you have no idea what it is. Right. I mean, I love when Frodo is with Bilbo in the Hall of Fire in the Fellowship of the Ring, and they overhear the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bilbo says, it's a song to Elbereth. You know, and, he, and that's it. You know, he doesn't give any further explanation. Like, well, duh. Okay, now that I've cleared that up, let's go talk, you know. And, and of course, it's not just Frodo who's left sort of wondering like, what the heck. But, of course, the reader, even more than Frodo, is like, uh, right? Him to Elbereth. Okay. I, I can run with that. But, I mean, that's, of course, just Tolkien is doing that sort of thing all the time in The Lord of the Rings. I just was talking with an earlier caller about the white gem that Arwen gives to Frodo. And I was just reading the passage where she says, for mine is the choice of Luthien. And it's like, okay, if you've been paying really careful attention and you remember the song that Aragorn sang back in The Fellowship of the Ring, you know, you might be able to piece together what the heck she's talking about. But odds are you can't piece together what she's talking about there. Right, right. You know, there are a whole lot of times when he refers to things from the Silmarillion, which 
So, of course, The Silmarillion was unpublished at the time that these books came out. So literally nobody had the faintest idea what he was talking about when he said those things. But it's one of the things which really contributed to make the books really powerful. But there's no clear connection between the Eagles and the Valar in The Lord of the Rings. I don't see any reason to suspect that they're not. Okay. Thank you. All right. No problem. All right. Hell, hang on. Who's calling? Hello? Hello, is this Tolkien Professor? This is, hello. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm very good. Good. Um, Here's my one question that I've been wondering. Okay. Um, In Return of the King, where you have Aragorn going through the Paths of the Dead, Mm -hmm. and you come up to the scene where Aragorn is looking, well, they've all come up to the skeleton that is at the door. Yes. Basically. Does Tolkien ever get into anything about who that is or what's going on? We know who he is. There's a lot that we don't know about him, but we do know who he is. This is the son of the second king of Rohan. Um, Okay. When when the Rohirrim arrive, the brief history of what becomes called the Mark of Rohan is it was a province of Gondor, and a bunch of the uh, Gondorians lived there. There were not that many people there at the time that Eorl the Young comes down. But there are previous civilizations that lived there before the Gondorians came and lived there. And the Paths of the Dead were set up by those ancient people. So nobody really knows exactly for what original purpose it was set up. And when the kings of Rohan established themselves, when they found Dunharrow, which is this fastness way up in the mountains, which is almost perfectly inaccessible. I thought they actually did a reasonably good job. The kind of cliff path that they made in the films for that looked a little bit dorky, but but, but anyway, it was (laughs) sort of the right idea anyhow. But anyway, this would be a good place for a fortress, but then they're like, oh, hmm, gosh, look, there seems to be this like haunted door here, and they come up to it, and there's this old guy there who's been there for goodness knows how long, and he just says, the way is shut. It was made by the dead, and the dead guard it. The way is right. shut, and then he drops dead. They know not very much, but one of the things that they do know is that they're not supposed to go there. Because mm-hmm. that whole scene in, in the movie bothered me so much because it was so different than, <laughs> than the book. Yeah, you know, and and it, I didn't think they did a very good job of it because I I really liked that mystery that was kind of left with that. The passage that I'm going to read here is in the list of the lines of the kings of the mark, in Appendix A of the Return of the King. The second king, Eorl's son, is Brago, mm-hmm. and Brago is the one who builds Meduselt. Okay, and at the grand opening feast of Mead Hall, yeah, yeah, of Meduselt, his son Balder vowed that he would tread the paths of the dead and did not return. Mm. That's it. <laughs> okay. That's, that's all we know. So we, so we know that it's Baldur. And... Yeah, we do know who it was. It was Baldur. And Aragorn clearly knows about this and, and alludes to it when he sees yeah. the skeleton. You know, he looks down and he says... Yeah, but it's not my job to, you know, figure out what you were doing. And... Yeah, and he, so, but he basically recognized, okay, this is Baldur's skeleton. Now, what Baldur was doing, he said that he was going to tread the paths of the dead, and they find his skeleton in front of a door, which he couldn't open, mm-hmm. and his sword is notched and bent next to him. It looks like 
he tried hacking at the door with his sword in the end. Now, right. like, what exactly was Baldur's cause of death? We don't really know. Was he killed by the, you know, did he die of fright? Did he die of starvation? Did he die in some other horribly unspeakable way by the dead who are guarding the path? No idea. Makes me think of the line that Faramir says when he says about his not taking the ring if he found it by, uh, the, by the wayside. Side, yeah. Yeah. We are truth towers. I would have taken that as a vow and right. I would have held to it. And I think Aemir says something similar that we will perform a vow or die in the attempt. And clearly Balder is not just going to turn around and go back, which is actually one of the things that makes me sort of suspect that he probably, he, might, he may well have died of starvation. Trying to get through the door, he wouldn't turn around and go home. Oh, that's an awesome explanation for that that I had never even thought of. So I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it was also very scary. And we hear some of Gimli's experiences he's right. going through and not having a good time. So it's hard to imagine Baldur just like sort of sitting there and quietly starving to death as he, you know, since he can't get through the door. Obviously, it was a little bit more violent. Yeah. <laughs> with the notched sword. And, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but clearly he was attempting to get through the door and failed. So, but anyway, that's definitely who it is. And that's pretty much all we know about it. That um, is awesome. Yeah. Thank you it's, so much. It's very cool stuff. I mean, I was just talking with, with the previous caller there so many either untold stories or undertold stories yeah. that Tolkien points to. It is just uh, amazing the number of things that his imagination reached to, but then just didn't follow up on. And I don't think it's like, you know, laziness or carelessness or something. This is one of the things that I love about the appendices, especially Appendix A there, because Appendix A gives you this brief history of Gondor and of Rohan and of the dwarves. But, you know, it, it's on the one hand, lots of rich detail and backstory that you don't get in other places. And mm -hmm. yet it's also really tantalizing even stories that are told in comparatively full detail like the story of helm hammerhand and the, yeah. the fell winter that's a really great story as it's told but there's clearly so much more to say about yeah. about helm I, and what goes on there i really wish there was more about the dwarves yeah you know, in all the lord of the rings because they have such a rich history you know that we know nothing about because it's all under the mountains you know and you just you know they don't tell they don't talk about talk right. about it or anything and right. it would be just so great to know you know of what they did and how the tunnels they made and the things they found and you know yeah that no, kind of there's, stuff. there's clearly so much that could be told there i mean even just hearing things like gimli's song about khazad doom oh, the little, the little snapshot that that gives into dwarven life or even just going back to the hobbit and the again brief poetical snapshot mm -hmm. that thorin and company give of dwarven life in the yeah we must away our break of day song at the beginning, even just taking that and then extrapolating that to like, wow, what must Casa Doom have been like? And yeah. then thinking about the, again, also brief glimpses we get into Dwarven society in the Silmarillion with yeah. Nograd and Belagost and what went on there and what happened to them. And there are so many things. Oh yeah. And even like the Dwarven language, Yes. So much because uh, like when Gimli is fighting in uh, Helm's Deep, yeah. you know, he's always saying, Kazad, you know, yeah. and like really, and that language is so powerful, you know, yeah. much more so than Elvish. Yeah. You know, as far as like a fighting language, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I agree. It definitely sounds like a better language to shout a war cry yeah. in like than, than German Elvish. or Russian or something. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. It's, but there is so little in it. I mean, I forget the total number 
of words in Kuzdul, the Dwarven language, that are actually instantiated in Tolkien's works, like th- mm-hmm. that he actually uses. But it's a small number. It's like, I forget, 15, 20? I mean, it's a very small number of words. We get this sort of sense of the structure of this language, but we know very little about it, though yeah. one sort of imagines that Tolkien had thought it through more than is represented in the books, but... Although I wonder if that is a reflection on, you know, the secretive dwarven society is that they didn't share that language with oh, yeah, you know, exactly. outsiders, you know, like they, no one knows the dwarven word for mithril, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and I could totally imagine Tolkien himself sketching out a full grammar of the dwarf language, but then just never writing it in the books because dwarves wouldn't do that. If there is an introductory grammar of Kuzdul, they wouldn't distribute it. You know, yeah. they would keep it under lock and key. Now, most likely he never did write that down or else right. Christopher Tolkien would probably have mentioned it by now. But anyway, still, I mean, I, I can imagine him really thinking about it and fleshing it out and yet not representing it because he would want to be consistent with the story. And yeah. that's just the way dwarves are. Yeah, you would think like the Book of Mazarbo would have, you know, some dwarven language in it, but yet none is there. Right. You know? Yeah, so. exactly. Even <laughs> you even have the shift into the elvish script. When that, Ori is writing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, no. No, because of course that was going to be a public record. You know, sure. and, and something which possibly non-dwarves might be looking at not that they're expecting people to come across and like pick its charred and battered remnants out of the pile of their bones but definitely that document clearly could be used as a public document at some point and so therefore gotta write that not in dwarvish (laughs) comment in elvish exactly so that nobody learns our secret language right well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. No problem. Amount. And uh, your podcast has given me so much enjoyment over the Tolkien stuff. It, it, amazing. I mean, I've read the books ever since I was 12, and I read them once or twice a year. But uh, <laughs> it's just brought so much more depth to the books for me. So thank you so much. Wonderful. I'm very glad to hear that. Very glad. Really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Good. No problem. Well, thanks for listening. Yep. Have a good night. Okay, you too. And that was it for Skype session number two. Thanks again to everyone who called in. If you have a question you'd like to ask, stay tuned. I'll announce another Skype session sometime soon. Also, your call-in needn't be a question. If there's just a passage or character that you'd like to discuss in more general terms, I'd be happy to do that, too. Calls needn't be only for people seeking concrete answers to questions. I've got several more episodes in the immediate pipeline. Another Tolkien chat, another Q&A discussion, another Skype session and the long-awaited continuation of Hobbit Lecture Number 5. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.